Wood Mackenzie's Solar and Energy Storage Summit is back and in person. After two years of running our events virtually, we're off to the stunning waterfront oasis of Coronado, California from June 6th to the 9th. Combining Woodmac's Legacy Solar Summit and Energy Storage Summit, this year's event will feature a day on solar, a day on solar plus storage, and a day on storage, so no stone is left unturned. Joining Woodmac experts will be leading grid-scale utilities, commercial and industrial developers, and state and federal policymakers. Hear from Cheryl Comer from Duke Energy, Aaron Thurlow from Longy, Mary Powell, CEO of Sunrun, Kelly Sarber, CEO of Strategic Management Group, plus many, many more. Visit woodmac.com events to find out more. The energy transition is complex, and it can be hard to know where to turn for information. In 2022, we're closer than ever to a cleaner future, but how do we get there? I'm Dr. Liz Dennett, and you're listening to Horizons, a podcast from Wood Mackenzie that explores the path to net zero. Offshore wind is poised to become one of the key technologies powering the energy transition. The technology is proven and costs are down, way down. Between 2015 and 2020, costs fell 50% and are expected to fall further. Among investors and policymakers, there is huge support for offshore wind. As a source of large-scale, carbon-free energy generation, it's attracting a huge number of bidders who are eager to invest in projects and wind tenders. However, there's intense competition already. The pipeline of proposed projects grew 65% last year and is now nearly three times forecasted wind capacity for 2030. Tenders in recent years for projects attracted 20 or so bidders. And in Scotland alone this year, more than 60 companies have bid. Normally, the route to market for offshore wind projects was run through government tenders, lease auctions, or a combination of the two. Competitors would win these tenders by bidding the lowest price and proving their ability to deliver on the projects. Now, however, it's not just price that's a factor. As you can find in the New Horizons report, there are four new parameters for success, and we're going to go through them on the podcast today. Offshore wind is a trillion-dollar opportunity. Successfully delivering on these new parameters will not only benefit the sector winners, but society as a whole, as we move forward on the road to net zero. So with that, it's truly my pleasure to introduce not two, but three amazing guests who will help us navigate the trillion-dollar offshore wind opportunity. First up, we have Soren Lassen, Head of Offshore Wind Research here at Wood Mackenzie. Thank you so much for joining us today, Soren. I'm a big fan of bottom line up front questions. What is one thing everyone should know about offshore wind and the opportunity behind it? When you look at offshore wind uh, today, you often think green power. But I believe that what we have learned over the past five years is that offshore wind is a lot more than just green power. And I think that over the next decade, we will learn even more around all of the value propositions that the offshore wind industry can, can bring to this globe. Awesome. Next up, we have Ricardo Roca, Offshore Wind Technical Director at Bewa. Ricardo is an engineering geologist with over 18 years of technical management and consulting experience in the field of geosciences applied to engineering both onshore and offshore. Ricardo, thank you so much for joining us today. Question for you, what is one thing everyone should know about offshore wind? As a, a developer that has been purely working in, in, uh, in offshore wind over the last nine years, uh, I think that the, the potential is, is obviously tremendous um, in a way that uh, I believe it's the only renewable technology uh, that can deploy 
large amounts of capacity uh, into into the market, providing, of course, the energy that is necessary to the global renewable transition. And finally, we have Michelle Kurdienz, Product Strategy Director at SIF Group. SIF Group is a leader in offshore foundations for wind projects in the oil and gas market. They offer continuous improvement in product equipment and technology and enlarging the production envelope to support customers and lowering the cost of energy. Michelle, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. You're most welcome. Jumping right into it, tell us about the opportunities that lie in offshore wind. What makes it so important in the energy transition? Well, actually, the, the, the opportunities that lie in offshore wind is so important and so huge because basically it's a very large, untapped resource. And uh, we're just standing at the beginning of using that resource uh, in order to basically reduce CO2 reduction and try to stop global warming. I would echo Michelle in saying that, you know, we're only at the start. Uh, offshore wind accounts for today for less than 10% of the total uh, cumulative uh, wind capacity that's, that's installed today. But when we're looking ahead, we're just seeing, uh, seeing such a strong vision, uh, like Michelle and uh, Ricardo was also saying. And uh, we're just seeing that vision getting stronger and stronger. Last year, we saw the offshore wind targets growing by more than 40%. We saw the pipeline growing by more than 60%. I think that's quite unique and tells you a lot about the potential of the offshore wind space. Oh, okay, cool. Now, what's the connection here to hydrogen power? Why is this important? Well, if, if the driver of uh, our offshore wind market is indeed to reduce global warming and prevent CO2 emissions, then you have to realize that not all processes are electrifiable. So we have some, some processes that do emit a lot of CO2 that cannot be replaced by electricity. And hence, uh, hydrogen might be a solution to uh, make those processes clean. Just as an example, making green steel requires a lot of, may require a lot of hydrogen, which is not hydrogen used for uh, melting the steel, but it is hydrogen used for reduction of the steel making process. And uh, so there is a lot of, lot of uh, processes that we can convert to electricity, like our cars, um, and also all domestic sort of power usage might be electrifiable. However, the, um, uh, there, is, there are some processes that require a lot of energy and do emit a lot of uh, CO2, but not yet um, a, uh, are electrifiable. And hydrogen might be a solution there. I think it's also important for the offshore wind industry because if you're looking at, especially North Sea, which is the largest, uh, which is the center of the offshore wind growth, um, then we are also starting to, to see issues when it comes to demand for, for green power. And by introducing green hydrogen, you're increasing demand for green power. So you could say it's, um, it's an ecosystem, green hydrogen and offshore wind, because it's also important for the growth of the offshore wind industry. And like Michelle was saying, I think... Uh, it is important to recognize that the emissions coming from offshore wind is also uh, you know, getting significant because the industry is growing as fast as it is. So being able to uh, use green hydrogen to decarbonize the, the supply chain is, of course, a, a, a major benefit for not just the industry, but really for the world. Oh, okay. So that's the connection between steel and green hydrogen. Now, where in the world are we seeing the most investment in offshore wind energy? Boy, 
that that's a, a a difficult one. I think at at the moment with the latest announcements, I would say in the in the North Sea, uh, again uh, with the with the collaboration between uh, Germany, Denmark, uh, Netherlands, and and Belgium that has been announced of target of sixty five gigawatts by the end of the decade uh, plus going up to 150 gigawatts uh, up to 2050. I think that's that's been, I would say, uh, um, the largest announcement, if if I'm not mistaken, in, in the industry over over the last uh, year. But uh, I guess Soren has some uh, uh, newer figures in, in, in his head. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, today it's, it's really roughly less than 10 markets. Uh, the offshore wind industry really only covers uh, less than 10 markets, but by 2030, we'll see it increase by uh, north of 20 uh, markets. So it's also, we are seeing the growth spreading, uh, proliferating into new markets. Uh, but you're right, uh, Ricardo, it's, uh, it's the North Sea where we are seeing the most growth. It's also China just last year who really dominated uh, the market just last year. And China will continue to be uh, one of the largest, uh, you could say, regions for offshore wind, but, uh, but then, yeah, followed by the North Sea. Why China and the North Sea? Basically, it's quite logical. I think the North Sea is, is, is the starting point of the technology. It started all, uh, basically, I think it started in Denmark, to be honest. And then it, it, it went all over the, the Northern Seas, um, um, by which the Danes have led the introduction of the technology to be really multiplied for for more than just uh, let's say research uh, scales. The Chinese, of course, have a totally different agenda because they do see in their big cities every day the consequences of burning coal by big smoke amounts, and therefore. Uh, the Chinese have chosen to electrify as much as possible using large offshore wind farms. Gotcha. Yeah. And we actually talked about that on one of our earlier podcasts, too, and the role that and the outlook that China's had in looking at solar versus offshore wind and how they've had very different outlooks at the two of those pieces. And we talked a little bit about the role of supply chain, which leads me to something that I'm really keen to hear from you all about, and that is... How do we see the role of the supply chain developing as the industry changes and evolves? I can I can do that one. Uh, I I think it's it's critical. Uh, without supply chain, there will be no uh, installed capacity. So uh, I think that's that's the most relevant point. Uh, however, um, the way we have seen the industry growing so far, and and to head up on on what Michelle just just said. Of course, the North Sea had the wind conditions, the wind resource, which is what we are trying to harvest. Second, it had the shallower water depths, which allowed for reaching up a commercial scale uh, uh, in a relatively short period of, of 10 years, even less than that. But third and most important, they had a supply chain and had a supply chain available, which is, for example, not available today, to the U.S. market, uh, which was coming from you know uh, many years of experience in the oil and gas industry, as well as uh, I would say um, a lot of uh, uh, contractors from uh, Arbor Construction dredging that uh, saw an opportunity and were the early starters in in this industry. 
So I think that supply chain was critical by then. Accessibility, capacity to uh, uh, produce large structures of steel like the ones that SIF uh, has been supporting the industry with, in this particular case, the monopiles, uh, uh, which allow the industry to grow um, up to the stand that we know it today. Having said that, and looking at uh, the, the, the forecast of growth of the industry that is needed, uh, I believe that the existing supply chain is not sufficient to accommodate that growth. And uh, it's on, uh, I would say, the whole industry to um, find out solutions which can cope with, with the demand. Um, we can very quickly uh, discuss here uh, amongst us and understand uh, uh, that what it is available today will not be able to cope with the needs of, uh, uh, of the industry up to the end of the decade. So today we are already constrained with some projects uh, uh, which uh, um, probably will not have uh, traditional uh, suppliers or known offshore wind suppliers to, to provide uh, uh, the elements that are required to, to bring this capacity online. I think the biggest challenge we have is that not only does the supply chain need to scale up largely because the demand is, get, is going up largely, while we are scaling up in quantity, in volume, our product is changing. So we need to build new boats, new factories, new tools in order to build bigger turbines, bigger blades, bigger towers, bigger cables, bigger everything. So we don't not only need to make more of the same, we need to make more of ever increasing products which means that while we scale up in volume, we have to adapt to bigger products. Whether you are a turbine manufacturer or a foundation manufacturer, our product is increasing because of economy of scale. The easiest way for us to, to be very competitive is to put a bigger turbine onto a bigger foundation. And, and it doesn't seem to be that we're yet in a, in a point where that race is going to end. So whilst we um, grow volume, we have to make new assets in order to produce those new bigger components. I think this is a really interesting question because you're right, all the fundamentals are shifting. Uh, like Ricardo, like you were saying, historically there's just been a significant oversupply uh, in the supply chain. Uh, and you've seen such a strong focus on price. How do you reduce the, the, the cost of offshore wind? Uh, and that has of course led to pressures on the, on the supply chain and also the ability to do so because of the oversupply. But when you're looking at the growth, uh, how that's going to explode from 2025, I think we're seeing at least the fundamentals shifting there when it comes to oversupply, like you were also uh, saying, uh, Ricardo, and you're also seeing that, like you were saying, Michelle, that the components need to be higher. That also means that there, there might also be uh, greater opportunities for you to differentiate your products in the, across the supply chain. So uh, I certainly believe that there's some opportunity for change. Um, another element that I find interesting is that when you look at the number of companies in the supply chain, we've seen significant consolidation across the supply chain over the past, I would say, especially five years. At the same time, now with the offshore wind industry growing, we've started to see some fragmentation on the developer side. So you're seeing 
you're seeing that uh, shift actually. And I guess from my side, that would mean you would push some more initiatives, some more opportunities, maybe also some more scope over to the, the hands of the, uh, the suppliers. And I think it would be really interesting to, to hear uh, both, you know, uh, Michelle and, and, and Ricardo's view of that, if you agree with that and, and if you're feeling it and, and how you would expect that to play out. I think it's a very good point. Uh, key thing here is that if we want to scale up and need to scale up, we should be doing what we're good at and try to get some breath into this, the speed of developments that we see. So I think um, if you leave everybody to do what they are good at and you would consolidate the technology for a little while by not constantly inventing the wheel over and over again from scratch and try to catch everybody get catch some breath and say okay let's stop with these new turbines let's build 10 years from this while we can take our time to really get into the flow because the big challenge is once you're in the flow of the new product that you're making you have to start building new facilities for even bigger projects for the future. So scaling up would be ideal if we could take a small breath on, on the status quo where we are, seem to be now, the new next level, get a plateau of technology for a couple of years and then go, go, go for the next point. But the problem is that our customers, the developers, they need to bid against each other to, to, win, to win the project, which has led to this enormous maturing of the market and eh? so it was very very good in the past that 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 we've chosen to to select this way of working where developers have to compete against each other it helped us to get subsidy free to become subsidy free but now in order to bid something that you have to build in 10 years time the developers just have to take a wild guess for what sort of turbine is available over 10 years and everybody is pushing each other to the next level and to the next level of bigger components. Ricardo? I think now, now we need to, to start looking at, at, at making that supply chain bigger through, uh, um, the, let's say, the development of solutions that can cope with, uh, um, with the demand uh, on, on, on one hand and with the ever-growing uh, size of the turbines that Michel just, just raised, because I, I think that over the last years, we have been saying that uh, every 10 years, the turbines would double size. Uh, that's no longer truth in, in offshore wind. It has been growing exponentially. Uh, so uh, we have seen uh, um, the size of the turbines going up, uh, which I see it not as a, of course, as a challenge, to the supply chain, to the installed supply chain. And uh, Michelle knows that I've been advocating for, for the monopiles of, over the last years, because I believe that is the most suitable foundation type for, for the fixed bottom. But I need now moving into deeper waters, moving into uh, uh, hard grounds, uh, rocky seabeds, uh, um, and of course, more challenging uh, um, site conditions we need to open a bit uh, our um, portfolio of, of solutions and maybe bring uh, uh, some uh, um, industry players into the offshore wind that not only, 
let's say the traditional ones plus uh, uh, the oil and gas industry, which has been for many years and keen on 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 to stepping here. But I think it's also an opportunity for the traditional civil contractors, uh, other contractors to also start working on 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 this industry and and making it also part of of their portfolio of technologies. So I, I think that all, all in all, what I want to say is that as a developer, we have to make sure uh, that we design projects uh, uh, which are, uh, um, of course, making their purpose, which is uh, to produce power, uh, de uh, design them on a sustainable and um, efficient manner, but also we need to design them for uh, uh, the available supply chain. Um, and, and the available supply chain might not be the obvious one uh, that we all know uh, that we have been using on, on previous projects. Uh, we might need to develop solutions which are specific for certain markets where there's no offshore wind as of today. But in order to enable that market, uh, uh, we should uh, uh, make sure that uh, that supply chain is, is developed, either as said, from from the existing industry, uh, offshore wind industry, or from other industries uh, that could uh, participate here. Uh, when it comes to then the design of a monopile, do you see the role of, you know, for, for example, SIF changing? Like, do you have more to say when it comes to actually the design of a monopile now than you did five or 10 years ago? And do you see that maybe changing as well over the next five or, or 10 years? How do you see that evolving, uh, Michel? Absolutely. Yeah. Um... It's very simple. Um, in order to build a wind farm with using of the current technologies, there's about seven big contracts involved, uh, from foundation to turbine to installation contractor and uh, the substation and the cable, what have you. And the design has been a separate contract all of the time. Um, and I would say that about half of our turnover in the past came from directly from developers who just wanted SIF uh, to do whatever we are good at, building monopiles. And the other half came from uh, EPCI contractors, which are people that have the assets in the transport and installation, so the, the vessel to install the foundation. And in order to keep that asset going, they took on the responsibility of the engineering. And at this moment, in the growing demand, they do not need take on that extra risk anymore. They just play Hertz car rental and just rent out their vessel to anyone. And that opens an opportunity for us to, to, to get into the design of our foundations, which, which helps us to make them simpler, easier, and more scalable. That's why we are now fully moving towards designing our own products. But that's just one mere example of an, an, a maturing market where everybody has to take its responsibility in order to be able to scale and in order to be able to get rid of all these typical teething problems of a new technology. What is a monopile, in case our listeners aren't, aren't familiar with it? That's the foundation on which you put a turbine offshore, whereas on land everybody knows a big block of concrete, on, on, which is the foundation of your tower and your nacelle and your blades. And, on, and, and offshore, it's just a big steel tube that is hammered into the seabed onto which you uh, bolt the same sort of turbine that you are used to see onshore. Just to give you a bit of perspective, we're producing uh, the equivalent of steel of one Eiffel Tower every week. 
So every week we process the amount of steel of uh, equivalent to an Eiffel Tower. So it's it, it, but the whole business is huge. Whether it is our piece of the puzzle or the turbines or the blades, everything is staggeringly big. Now, offshore wind has one of the lowest emissions of any renewable technology. There are still some ways we can improve it and fine-tune it. Yes, there are. How can we do this? By making green steel, for instance. That's our part. Uh, By not hauling steel products from China because they're cheaper, using a lot of CO2 to haul them through the Suez Canal to the European market, but try to, to prevent hauling stuff around the globe and to build as efficiently as close by the end-use location. Yes, we're not there yet. So, so we are still um, able to improve our footprint, each of us. Interesting. The impact on marine life and local ecology is also important to take into consideration. How can we mitigate the environmental impact of offshore wind projects? That is part of a project uh, of an offshore wind project development. So it's it's in the core of all our activity uh, where we place the turbines, how we place them, which foundation type we use, which type of inner array cable uh, um, burial uh, assessment we use. So depending on where the project is located and the ecosystem on that on that project, we have to develop a project, uh, an offshore wind project that impacts the minimum possible into that ecosystem and if possible can serve as a a regenerator of the marine environment if obviously, if possible. I'm happy to provide a little bit of context and it would be great to maybe hear uh, some examples because when doing this uh, Horizons piece, for example, we, we found that if you're taking the acreage that offshore wind will occupy by 2030, then that acreage alone is three times more than the largest European country, which is France. So that tells you about the scale and opportunity there is if the offshore wind developers or if the industry as a whole goes in and starts optimizing on how they're using that acreage. One thing is, of course, that you can use larger turbines, thereby reducing the size of the acreage that you're occupying. Uh, Another thing is, and there's a number of different uh, examples here, like uh, Ricardo mentioned. Maybe you could mention some of those, uh, Ricardo. Yeah, I think we have been looking at, um, of course, uh, try to uh, disturb the minimum uh, seabed as possible during during construction. Uh, um, that is one one of the aspects we normally use uh, in in some regions. Uh, for example, like the Baltic Sea. The boulders sitting uh, on on the seabed, they are, they are reefs. Uh, so if we uh, um, design the wind farm in a way that we avoid uh, touching them, uh, which of course is challenging, but it is it is possible, or touching the minimum, uh, then we are uh, uh, avoiding disturbing that that marine environment. We have mitigations that are implemented during the construction, for example. Michelle said, uh, uh, this, this very large monopiles, they are normally driven, so they are actually hammered uh, uh, against the seabed uh, several meters below uh, a mudline. So we have to ensure that the noise produced is not hindering uh, uh, the marine life, especially the marine mammals. So we have noise mitigation systems which are deployed uh, uh, during wind farm uh, construction. Um, so there's there's several um, 
examples of uh, uh, mitigation techniques uh, that we can deploy either on the design of the wind farm or during installation as well as during uh, operation uh, stage. So I hope I gave you at least two, two examples that, of, yeah. of that. I think uh, if I'm doing some crystal ball gazing here, then I would also say that you, uh, over the next uh, 10 years, you'll see a wave of new innovations that will not just you know, mitigate the impact of offshore wind, but actually improve uh, the making it po- a positive impact on the, on the acres where offshore wind is deploying. Um, and I think that would be a really interesting area to, uh, to watch uh, over the next year. And um, again, I think this will, this will just help improve the value proposition and the attractiveness of offshore wind across the globe. And with that also accelerate the, not just the growth, but also the, the spread of offshore wind across the globe. Absolutely. Also, one example that has been studied uh, over the last uh, years in the industry is is the fact that uh, the offshore wind areas are normally restricted uh, to other activities, uh, whereas, of course, we are moving in a way where we would like uh, uh, to have uh, uh, other activities coexisting with with the offshore wind farm operation. But some studies have indicated that these offshore wind uh, uh, project areas, they act as sanctuaries to the marine life, heading additional surfaces for the marine life uh, to fix themselves and somehow renovating uh, uh, the, the, um, the marine environment uh, uh, in, in that way, uh, because it's, it is protected from uh, uh, other uh, external aggressions and, and brings in additional, additional structures for, to the seabed uh, uh, where, uh, uh, of course, the marine life can attach to bringing other life forms uh, uh, behind it. So all these, uh, um, let's say, um, potentials are unknown because the industry is still relatively young. Uh, uh, but of course, we are, we are looking at, at, at these uh, uh, upsides that, that come with the implementation of renewable uh, capacity uh, into into the market. Can you tell us about optimized use of the sea in places like Europe, especially where we're aiming to reduce dependence on coal and gas from Russia and invest in offshore wind? It's on on us, uh, on the developer side, to make sure uh, that we can fulfill our targets, uh, because as, as stated uh, across uh, um, the discussion, um, offshore wind is key. For the for the fast uh, uh, energy transition, and uh, um, I, I believe that we need to be, um, let's say, creative uh, in respect to to solutions. Uh, of course, permitting and consenting, and and uh, let's say a stable and and particular regulatory frame is key uh, uh, for us to to achieve that. And I would like to to reinforce. Um, what what has been said regarding that? I think that the, the the supply chain issue and the local content. I have a different perspective, uh, which is uh, that this should be, uh, of course, the driver. Uh, um, local content should not be an additional effort. Should not be more expensive. Should actually be exactly the opposite, and and that can only happen 
if we are creative with respect to the solutions that we use uh, um, on the future offshore wind farms, solutions designed not only to the turbine size that we select, to the site characteristics, but also to the existing uh, uh, and available supply chain, which cannot be an offshore wind supply chain because today the market is not the size that it has to be to cope with the challenge that we have in front of us. So we need to design solutions that can be delivered locally by uh, other uh, industry players like the ship industry, like civil contractors, like other contractors, which are today not uh, participating in what it is uh, the global offshore wind in industry. So my view is that whilst we continue to take solutions out of the shelf, being those uh, uh, monopiles or jackets or uh, um, gravity-based foundations or solutions that have been designed without uh, a single, uh, an exact project or a specific uh, uh, country to be deployed. Uh, we are forcing the supply chain to deliver something which is not ready to deliver. So I think that the key is in, uh, um, in, in of course, in the authorities, in, in, in the developers and in the supply chain to develop technologies where these other industries uh, players can also participate and support us delivering this objective which is, as of today, much bigger than the existing uh, industry that has delivered the installed capacity as of today. May I ask a, a follow-up question? Uh, uh, because I think this is, this is really interesting. It would be great to hear from you, uh, Ricardo. You know, we have, in our Horizons piece, we have listed five uh, parameters. We have price, we have local content, systems integration, ecological mitigation, and sustainability. When you're looking at these different parameters, and looking at the growth ahead, which of these parameters do you believe will be most challenging to, to deliver on uh, for, for the industry going forward? I think for me, system integration is, 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 is leading. Uh, um, of course, uh, sustainability, uh, it is key for our industry, as has been said. Um, unfortunately, the two main materials that we use in, in, in our industry, which is steel and concrete as, as of today, are carbon intensive. So we need to find ways to, to mitigate that and, and make them more uh, sustainable. Some good steps have been given on, on, uh, on, uh, on the blades, as, as you've seen, and a lot of uh, some of these uh, materials that we use are, are as of today recyclable, but they're still, of course, uh, um, a carbon intensity in in our industry, which we need to sort out in 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 the near in the in the near future, uh, in order to um, to deliver our 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 objectives. Uh, environmental impact. Uh, I think we have addressed it quite well. Uh, as said, the permitting and consenting processes are relatively long on the established markets, and the reason for that is that, of course, we are trying to to, to uh, mitigate as much as we can the impact of, of our activity. Uh, um, and, and I think that that is still a challenge moving forward, uh, but I believe that now we should work more 
on the regulatory uh, uh, part and maybe try to streamline some of the processes, whereas today we have already uh, solutions which are widely accepted as uh, uh, of, of a lower impact. What we see in some of the most mature markets is that the, the, the grid infrastructure is, uh, and, and of course system integration is, uh, um, is actually the bottleneck uh, uh, together uh, uh, with the other ones that, that I've mentioned. Uh, so I think local content, uh, uh, as said, in, in my perspective, should not be a, a challenge, should be an opportunity if we design for it. And, and of course, this is what we are trying to do on the projects that we develop. Um, and of course, uh, um, competitiveness in the industry is healthy, as, as allows us to reach where we are today. Um, but I also think that uh, um, this is an industry where each and every player has to make its profit. Uh, we cannot be uh, squeezing ourselves uh, uh, to, to win bids, to build projects which then afterwards are not profitable, because that that makes the, our industry as a whole uh, not sustainable. So um, I would say that uh, everybody makes, has to make its share. It's still a business, but it's the business uh, obviously on, on the right direction and, and we, we need uh, uh, to be compensated for it. And, and when I say we, it's all the players in this industry being developers, uh, suppliers, uh, uh, or, uh, um, or, or designers, consultancies. So we all have uh, uh, to have a profit because otherwise uh, the industry will, will not survive. So costs are down and therefore the playing field is somewhat leveled in regards to companies bidding for tenders. Now, Woodmac has identified four key parameters that are coming into play. Soren, what is the first of these? Um, that would be local content. And that's something that the industry is, is already fielding so local content, that is uh, jobs, it is uh, factories, but it's also exports. Uh, and that's something that you have really been, uh, uh, you've seen a lot of focus on uh, here in the past years, especially after the, in the wake of the pandemic. Then you have systems integration, which refers to the uh, essentially better integrating offshore wind into the grid. Uh, here, the, uh, the shining star is, uh, is power to X or green hydrogen which is what's gaining the, the most attention right now. But there are many different ways of you to improve the system integration of your project. Then there's uh, ecological mitigation. Uh, that is uh, to do yeah, mitigating, uh, reducing the impact of your offshore wind project, but also improving or enhancing the benefits of your offshore wind project to the, to the environment. And then lastly, there's sustainability. Uh, this is a broader uh, bucket. Um, I think uh, in, the off in the context of the offshore wind industry, it's especially um, emissions, and then it's uh, recyclability. Uh, those are some of the more important parameters that's coming up in, in offshore tenders, we believe, uh, in the future. All right. Thank you, everyone, for the very insightful conversation today. Soren, where can listeners learn more about the work that you and Woodmac are doing? woodmac.com. Uh, there's a lot of great uh, content in there and then also on our LinkedIn. Uh, and I would also, uh, of course, um, promote our Horizons piece this, uh, that we published this May, where you're able to learn a lot more about, uh, you know, not just Woodmac, but also uh, the offshore wind industry, if you want to learn more. That is a great answer. That Horizon report is spectacular.
Michelle, same question to you. And where can listeners learn more about the work that you and Ziff Group are doing? Well, look at the website, look at LinkedIn. We try to inform uh, all our stakeholders as best as we can. Ricardo, where can listeners learn more about the work that you and Bewa are doing? Just visit our page resource.bifare.com and our social uh, network channels. Outstanding. Thank you so much for everyone's time and contributions today. You're most welcome. For sure. Thanks a lot, Liz. Thank you very much. Offshore WIM players will need to demonstrate a new set of capabilities and competencies if they are to succeed in auctions and tenders around the world. The costs associated with this popular and emerging renewable technology are in freefall, so it's no longer good enough to say you'll complete the project at the lowest price. Offshore wind has very strong public support, and in regions with lower solar irradiance or land with onshore wind, it's very popular indeed. Total installed capacity is set to increase almost 1,000% in the next decade, from 34 gigawatts in 2020 to 330 gigawatts in 2030. The upsides and potential are not going unnoticed. More than a trillion U.S. dollars are expected to flow into the industry over the next decade. In order to compete in auctions and tenders around the world, the parameters of local content, systems integration, ecological migration, and sustainability will all need to be considered. Thank you for joining us on this May edition of Horizons. I'm Dr. Liz Dennett, and we'll see you on the next episode.